alternative ways of seeing, being and doing are vital in imagining and building the future. In October 2019, the Emerging Writers Festival collaborated with Art Centre Melbourne to produce a series of talks titled Critical Conversations as part of the inaugural Future Echoes Festival. In the third and final recording of the Critical Conversations series, spoken word artist, youth worker and community organiser Idil Ali hosts writers Joshua Allen and Georgia May in a discussion on arts, activism and justice-informed practices. Before we kick off our critical conversation about young people as agents of change, I'd like to acknowledge that we're on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people and Boomerang people. Um, I'd like to recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded, treaties have never been signed. I'd like to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'd like to recognize the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the room, including our panelist, Georgia. Um, and I would specifically, um, in a conversation where we're going to be talking about arts and activism, I'd like to acknowledge the continual fight of all the warriors who are trying to protect the Jaja Wurrung um, birthing trees. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm going to um, introduce myself. Um, my name is Ira Ali. I am a poet, a youth worker, a community organizer, and a moderator. Um, I grew up in the East. I grew up in um, the Carlton Housing Estate in a beautiful East African community, and I'm a proud Somali woman. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to start off by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of this country and pay my respects to my elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge my cousins, the Bunurong people, whose land neighbours ours. Uh, my name's Georgia May. I'm 19 years old and I'm a proud Wurundjeri woman. I am a writer and, yeah, that's... I like... I'm very pr proud of my Indigenous heritage and you'll soon see that when I don't shut up about it. <laughs> I feel like that's, that's me, but just how gay I am. Like, so... <laughs> um, I'm Joshua Allen. I'm an arts manager and writer, but I haven't been writing for a really long time, but have kind of started getting back into it now. Um, so I guess my, my practice at the moment is a lot of freelance producing and producing kind of being like project managing, like the person who sort of finds the venues, finds the artists, does the contracts, like does everything. Um, and I kind of fell into that because I think maybe, yeah, we, we'll probably talk about it, but the need to kind of create our own spaces, like I felt a really strong need to do that um, for the queer community that I'm part of, but also being uh, Asian diaspora. Um, so I grew up in Rockingham in Western Australia, which is a really small beach town. Um, I'm half Burmese on my mum's side and dad's side uh, colonial ancestry. Um, and that's pretty much me, yeah. Um, I went to, I guess I was talking to Georgia yesterday about um, one of the first times that I saw activism, um, I saw art and activism emerge in a way that, um, that I've, was so in awe of. Um, I went to a protest a couple of years ago um, that Warriors of the Virginal Resistance put on, um, the Dondale Rally, and I remember seeing um, four women um, in a cage with their necks chained to the cage um, and shutting down a massive intersection, refusing to move, making it really clear that if anybody tried to move the cage, they would be choking them. Um, 
And I remember just seeing that and being like, oh, so this is what activism in art looks like. So I wanted to ask, what was your introduction to activism through art? Um, I, it's really hard to pick a first memory or a first experience, but I guess something that comes to mind straight away is when um, I moved to Melbourne on my own to study when I was 18. And I think I must have seen like activism before that, but I just have this really strong memory of going to a spoken word, like poetry evening and seeing um, Candy Royale perform. Um, and Candy's sad, sadly missed and is no longer with us. But I think it was just seeing like someone being unapologetically angry and pers like really revealing a lot of personal truth and just talking back to power. And I think as a, as a young like person, just being in that space and seeing the community there as well, like was probably the first time I saw a lot of other POC in the room. And yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, um, now that I think about it, I actually think mine was the same as yours, except I wasn't at the rally when um, they changed themselves into the cell. I was actually in class at school because I was probably only 16 and, you know, I was, I was like wanting to rebel but also like the good school girl who was like, I can't miss a day because like I'll fail my entire life. But... I was sitting on my phone in class with it like hiding under the table just watching all of these women that I knew chain themselves in protest and all I could think was how much I wished I was there and not in my classroom and how much it inspired me to want to do more with the abilities that I had and that I didn't have and that I wanted to develop. Um, I just thought it was so staunch and brave because it was also so dangerous because there are just people out there who wouldn't care if they got choked. Uh, they would just make it happen. And then the other one that stands out for me is I believe it was an Invasion Day rally, although they've started to all blend in my head, where um, a bunch of our brothers carried a coffin through the streets that they'd made. Um, and I remember watching that and it just, it really hit home in ways that I can't describe. But yeah, it was really impactful. Um, I guess that's a good segue to the next question around what does activism mean to you in the context of the community that you belong to and whether or not you identify with the word act, like being an activist? For me, growing up in the Indigenous community and then also realising at a later stage that I was also part of the queer community, which I never really had a coming out because my, like, I was one of the lucky ones who just had family that were chill with it. So, you know, my auntie is um, a lesbian woman who was in a relationship for 25 years and has two kids. Like, it's just normal to us. But then when I got to, like, high school, I was like, oh, wow, so this, like, this isn't normal. <laughs> but I think because of that, um, I realised that my activism or how I see activism in both my communities, it's stepping out of my comfort zone and watching other people step out of their comfort zone. I think there's a lot that you can do. Um, if something's in your comfort zone, then it's probably something you should already be doing. And it's something that doesn't necessarily set you apart from the crowd. It's still great that you're doing it, 
but it makes you a good person and a normal person. It doesn't make you an activist necessarily for me. Uh, activism for me is stepping out of your comfort zone and putting yourself in situations that are going to improve your community at the risk of possibly hurting yourself. Not physically, not like emotionally, not strongly, but just that date, not the danger, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think you're kind of like, yeah, I, yeah I, I agree with some of what you're saying. I think maybe what you're talking about is the, the cost. Like yeah. the, it comes at some sort of personal cost, whether mm. that's your time, like your emotion. Yeah. I don't know. And like yeah. you don't have to be a good act. Like you're not a bad activist if you're not putting yourself at a cost. That's definitely not what I'm saying. But I think that's the big difference between being a good person and being an amazing activist. Um, but I've also been thinking recently on the term of activist itself. And while I do strongly identify with that word, um, all of my role models in my community were black activists. I've also really begun to strongly identify with the word protector. I'm protecting my country, I'm protecting my culture, I'm protecting my people. Um, and I feel like activism sometimes is a dirty word because it's seen as very aggressive and very like, I'm fighting for these things. But while I'm also doing that, I'm also trying to protect what's already there. Um. I guess for me, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, it's all about your, your work. Um, I guess for me, I, I don't identify with the word activist. And I think, as I probably revealed already, I, I kind of, being in between mixed race and also queer means I'm in between communities a lot. So it's kind of hard for me to have a really strong sense of belonging all the time. It's sort of a continual practice of like, this is what I'm feeling today. But then there are also days where you're kind of impacted twice by like, I don't know, like homophobia, queerphobia and like racism. And that's challenging. And I guess for me, I, yeah, I think I idolise a lot of activists. And I think for me, I have a lot of privilege also being white passing and I have never put myself on the front lines. And I think that's also to do with me having anxiety and being worried about taking up space that I shouldn't be. And so actually for me, I kind of identify more with the word, I guess, advocacy and being, I don't know, like being gentle about what I challenge and trying to support other people to do the work. Um, whether that's, yeah, just, I don't know, like me giving them my time giving them emotional support. Um, yeah, I'm still learning a lot, I think. Um, and I guess at the moment, my work is mostly about trying to create opportunities for POC in the arts. Um, and so many people before me have been doing this work, but I guess now I'm kind of realizing that I can't work within those systems anymore. Like I actually find working within the system really toxic and it takes a toll on my mental health. So how do I, so how do I kind of tackle those institutions and those ways of working? Um, so yes, so I, I kind of, I feel like, yeah, I feel like for me actually over the next however many years, like I think I will be doing much more of that frontline work and really connecting with my community more because I think going through these systems has been a form of um, 
I don't know, of, of me feeling like I was doing important work and now kind of being, oh, actually, I should just spend time with, like, fam, like, actually, and that's enough, maybe? But, um, yeah. What about you? Yeah, I guess for me, I go in out of using the word activist depending on who's saying it, and I think it's, like there must be times that I am identifying as an activist because I'm sometimes being asked to be part of panels or part of a conversation or somebody will refer to me, like will refer to my activism work. So the fact that I'm not denying the word means that I do I do wear the, the name sometimes, but I think similar to what Georgia was saying about like it being a risk, like me seeing activism as you taking on a position that's putting yourself at risk, I f- can identify with the word of being like, being an activist, when I'm doing things specifically for my community, as opposed to like if I'm doing solidarity work, I don't, I'm not the most vulnerable person in that space. So I don't see myself as doing activism work if I'm doing solidarity work. I'm doing solidarity work as a simple solidarity work because I know that I am like, although being visibly black and visibly Muslim, I'm supporting, I'm not at as much risk. Whereas if I'm doing something for African community, then I know that I am at risk and I know that I do take on a position of being a protector and I'm, I feel very privileged to be able to take, take that on because even within that, there is some, like I know that I have a privilege of having a, like a citizenship here. Like I know that if I'm doing refugee work, I, like if I get deported, I get deported to New Zealand where I have a dual citizenship. Like, I, like I'm aware of my position in that. But I guess like you mentioned like working like in an organization and um, I know that we do freelance work and we also have had roles in organization. How do you navigate having an ethically informed practice working in an organization? Josh, can I start with you? <laughs> do you need a second? No, yeah. I think, okay. yeah. <laughs> I think um, for me, I so my main job is writing for a community organisation. So I'm lucky enough to be able to work in an ACCO with my community and with my family and with my friends. So making sure, but with even within that though, there's always different, uh, differentiating opinions because we are government funded. And so there are things that we have to do to receive that funding that go against my morals of what we should be doing as a community organisation. Um, but the way I make sure that what I'm doing within that is ethical and morally right is I'm just always going back to my community and being completely transparent with them over what is happening. And if I cop criticism, then they're doing that from a place of like love and they're trying to help me be a better person so I never really take it to heart. But it's also really important for me to know that I am doing the wrong thing or I'm doing the right thing from the people who I'm trying to do it for. I work in a community organisation to help my community. I don't do it to help myself. Um, yeah. I, was just, I just had a thought of like, yeah, that there are definitely people who like um, describe themselves as activists, but you can clearly see that it's not for the community, it's for um, ego swinging. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess... Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm really conscious of that. Like, I feel like if I'm not, um, like, like, I guess it's, tr- it's tricky for me to talk about because obviously there's so much lateral violence within the POC community 
because there's so many different backgrounds, religious beliefs, attitudes, ways of working. Um, but also realising that I think in our community, we need to be much better at, in, at talking to Aboriginal and First Nations people and including them in these conversations about race and power. And that's kind of where I sit with my work. Like, I'm really interested in, in working within the arts organisations that I am and kind of going, that's great, you want to have um, a person of colour on your board, but why would they want to be there? Like, you don't do anything for their community. Um, the board structure may not be interesting. Like, boards aren't really fun or, like, emotional spaces that can be quite sort of devoid of, I don't know, of that, like... And can we afford to take that time off to be on that board because it's yeah, a volunteer role, like... Yeah, and I think this is the thing for me, too, of, of when theatre companies are like, great, we want to do um, this development with... We're going to do a work about migration and we want to work with refugees. And I'm sure you would have much more to say about this, but in a theatre context, it's like, okay, great, well, let's, you know, let's have an audition. And they just kind of roll out the usual way of working of like, we're going to have a development, then we'll have a rehearsal process and then we'll have a show. And then I'm like, yeah, but I don't think people from that community are going to be able to do a four-week rehearsal <laughs> period with you like that's not going to work like how are you going to schedule that time um I'm totally derailing yeah. your no, <laughs> the no, question no no I hear um, that because I think working within an organization they I think that a lot of times they want to do things the same way that they've always done it and then want you somehow to magically bring a different outcome because you are from a certain community and I think like working in an organization I work for in the not-for-profit I'm a youth worker for me it's it's like you if we've been barred from so many things for so long and there's all these additional barriers in place, then you're going to have to do so much more work for us to be able to get there. And maybe it's not you guys doing the work. Maybe, well, not maybe, you absolutely should be hiring us to do that work. Mm. Um, um, and I think this is a very specific arts context that I'll talk about, but the current conversation is around the lack of arts funding. It's a conversation that's been going on, of course, all, all the time. But um, I heard this talk recently where someone said, well, the small to medium arts sector is losing funding, but most of those organisations are like middleman organisations. Like they'll find the artists, they'll program them, and then they'll put them into a venue. And I think a lot of independent artists and independent producers are now sort of being like, why don't you just give me the money? Give me the money to do the project, to do, to, like, why, why are you sucking up the resource and the funding? And there's, I'm, and there's also conversations about this within not-for-profit community work where you have, like, a predominantly white organisation going into a funding pool, getting the money to do a community project, but meanwhile there are actual community organisations who should just get that money. And I think the way that is set up as well, like grants, you have to have like massive insurance to be able, able to even apply for grants. And you can't do that if you're being auspiced as like a community group. You have to be a large organization that has like a HR, that has somebody who handles the money that can be audited. Like this, the way that it's set up is for to, I guess, to have other people administer something for community rather than community to do something for themselves, which is the opposite of what community wants or needs. 
I think for me, like listening to all of this, it's a very similar experience to what I've had, but the key theme, I guess, is like tokenism. They want to be able to tick the box to say that they've got, you know, the POC representation or the First First Nations representation, but they want to be able to tick the box on their terms, not actually put in the work. And I mean, I don't have heaps of experience in the workforce with this kind of thing, especially I've only been out of high school for two years and in those two years I've been working um, with my community. But in high school, like I went to a school of maybe 500 kids with 100 Indigenous students, which was still really good for the time. But I had my principal coming up to me as a, you know, 15, 16-year-old asking me to do welcomes to country before... Um, And then when I would sit down and explain to him like that, that's actually really inappropriate. And while I could go through the right channels to allow myself to have that permission to do it, it just didn't sit right with me. And then they would turn around and say, but don't you want to represent your culture? Like, isn't that who you are and what you should be doing? Like, aren't you proud? I wish I could have been there and been like, (laughs) you should ask for this much money. Like, yeah, I turned (laughs) around and said... But even that's still problematic. Yeah. I basically said, if you want to welcome like find an elder and pay for it. Otherwise, keep doing the acknowledgements. And I'm happy to do an acknowledgement. And they were just so forceful on it. And me being like, you know, a child was like, okay, I'll do it. And then they wanted to get me like this possum skin cloak. And, you know, they wanted all the kids to be sitting and watching me. And it was just, it was so bad. (laughs) And I think I did it maybe twice. And then I just turned around and I said, this is not happening anymore. I'm putting my foot down. You can think I'm a bad black if you want to, but (laughs) this is my culture and I'm not going to compromise on it because you don't want to fork out the money to do the proper procedure. And then every time they came and found me, I'd just run away. Yeah. (laughs) I guess, like, that makes me ask, like, who we... Who do you feel like you're, like, account... I feel like I know who you guys feel like you're accountable to, but I want to ask, like, who do you... Who are you accountable in these spaces because this idea of like them like this principle or like other people thinking that you're a bad black or like thinking thinking that we're not representing our culture if we don't want to be part of multi, like harmony day or something like you know like which is actually a day against discrimination like mm-hmm. harmony day is so watered down but like what is who who are you accountable to um for me it's definitely accountable definitely to mentors and elders like but I guess for like for me like I I often like coming from a migrant background and like my grandparents being like great we've slaved away we've done all this work now become a lawyer and I've kind of had to go sorry I'm going to work in the arts but so so I think for me like it's yeah I guess I do I do often think about my grandparents and think about trying to prove that my work is valid to them, but also for them to understand that there's a place for them within the arts and, like, their stories and their experiences. And, like, so, so I'm kind I don't know, I'm kind of accountable to them, but mostly I think my peers. So I, I feel like... Um, oh, and definitely the generation coming through because I think despite a lot of instability, I think we're in a really exciting place for young people to come through with much more agency. Um, Like I felt like growing up, I had to wait until I became experienced. So I kept my mouth shut and I assimilated and I didn't identify like as Burmese, like 
took me ages to kind of figure out my queer identity. And that was, that was total assimilation. And I think now that I'm kind of a bit more loud about who I am and the work I'm doing, if I stuff up, my peers will hold me accountable. Like they, they will be in straight away being like, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Or, hey, actually that opportunity is flawed. You shouldn't have promoted it. Because I'm usually sending a lot of opportunities to people and trying to help people to kind of come through. Um, yeah. I'm glad that you keep it open enough that people feel like they can give you, because I think sometimes it's hard to critique your peers, especially with peers that have similar identities to you. Like personally, that's the stuff that makes me feel really nervous um, because they, however which way they, like I have immense respect for however which way people survive and cope. But then for, for me personally, I'm like, I'm trying to thrive. Like I'm trying to see our communities really thrive and I want us, I want, I want you mob to have sovereignty so that my mob stop like suffering. So I think that for us, it's like, we're really trying to go beyond um, coping. And that means that sometimes you're gonna have to critique your peers. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you guys have that, those open channels. Um, uh, for me, my, my accountability is multi-layered. Um, I think first and foremost, I'm accountable to myself. If something does not sit right with me, I'm not going to go to someone else to try to convince me that it is right because it might be right for someone else, but just this situation might not be right for me. Um, and then secondly, I'm accountable to my community and say my peers, um, but in equal amounts to my elders and young people. I think elder, my elders have a special kind of knowledge that I don't possess. And so I value that greatly, but I also think that young people have such new and creative ways of thinking about situations and framing them in ways that you know, you don't feel guilty for even considering it. And so, yeah, they're my two main, they're the two main groups I hold accountability to. Um, and I think with the being accountable to my peers, it's, it's a tricky rope to walk on because there's a, there's a part of it where you want it and you want to be able to give it because they're the people that you respect and they're the ones that you see yourself in the most. And then there's a part where when you want to give it, sometimes it's perceived as lateral violence mm. and they don't want it. There are people who are willing to be critiqued and then there are people who aren't willing to be critiqued and you've got to find out the hard way when suddenly a whole mob of people turn against you and say that you're um, a violent person for um, saying that someone took an opportunity they probably shouldn't have. I might expand a little bit more on that because, yeah, I think it's just in my brain at the moment, but there's lots of conversation about um, community work in the arts being of like not the same standard as like contemporary art. It's like there's traditional community work over here and then there's excellent art over here, like they're not together. And I think there are a lot of people who I look up to in my community who are making like excellent community-based informed work that still has like, uh, like aesthetics is a tricky word to talk about, but it's like the aesthetics of it are really beautiful and interesting and challenging and confronting. 
rather than going and seeing a work where maybe the venue wasn't right or they didn't have enough resource to do the set or like there's a lot of things missing. And I think within the POC community, there are a lot of people who are, are totally happy just doing the work for the community that is maybe not full of resource and it's not about aesthetics at all. And that's important work. But for me, I'm interested in making, kind of combining all of that together and kind of putting it on in our, ven in our big venues that taxpayers pay for, like we pay for, so why aren't we seeing this work? Um, but yeah, that causes division, I think, within my circles of like, how come you're doing this and you're not validating that? But I'm like, oh, well, we all choose to think, do things differently. Yeah. And I think what you say like rings really true to some of the work that, um, that I'm interested in doing because I think that being a youth worker, we're often offered free tickets to very lovely places. Um, I shouldn't name names. But like, um, and we can take young people to see amazing shows um, but at the same time, when they go to the shows, how are they treated? And it might not necessarily be staff, but it'll be other people who've paid for tickets um, and how they feel sitting next to people who they assume haven't paid for tickets. We haven't, but they don't know that. Um, so I think that, like, for me, it's like, um, like, I think, like, I grew up in Carlton um, in the housing estate and the young people that live in the housing estate are so close by to the city. And it should be that we're accessing these spaces, but we don't feel like we can't. So then when we try to come up with a pathway for young people to actually access their local area, then it might be seen as prioritizing these white institutions over community spaces. But for me, it's like, well, community spaces, we kind of, not, not every day do we have like a show that's available to us. And, and that, like, I feel like in these institutions, not every day, but wherever, the way I see it, wherever there is art that is meant to be for us, I'm going to try my best to go there and take young people with me and give them the opportunity to see that. Especially when the young people don't consider the nuances. They're so young, they're not thinking about it. It gives us the opportunity to go there and actually leave and then talk about it, to actually have the opportunity to discuss it. Because um, I guess like we talk about like representation and stuff, but a lot of our young people go to schools where all their teachers are white and they go to, um, they watch content, like the shows that they're interested in, the people don't look like them. Um, so then to go to like a white institution, but actually see um, work that represents them and getting to enjoy that. Um, and then walking away and be like, why did that still feel a little bit weird? Like I enjoyed what I watched, but why did I feel weird in the space? Or who said, who said what to make me uncomfortable? And actually getting to debrief about that and then actually talking about where they do and don't belong. Because the way I see it, like these institutions, I guess um, the idea of belonging to white people is so confusing because like we're on black stolen land. So they built on top of something that belongs to black people. So for me, I'm like, oh, that's that's a community that we can relate to, that we feel connected to. So why can't we be in these spaces? Yeah. Um, I guess I want to ask, um, like I guess creating art that centers our identities, rights, dignity, freedom, and culture takes a toll and it's gonna take lifetimes to achieve the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Um, so I want to know what are strategies and practices that you use to ensure that this work is a long-term and how and what do you do to support yourself around burnout? Um, for me, it's saying no. 
Um, it's just being able to be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, because I think we, we always take on too much. Like, we always do too much. And right now I'm very burnt out. And I'm tired of, like, of being perceived as difficult, of, like, just because I don't want to work in this way and I want to propose to do something differently that requires some rethinking and maybe requires resource. I don't want to be, like, if you're not going to follow through with that like, and come on that journey with me, then I'm not going to do it the way that you've always done it. And if that's, like, if that's not going to allow us to work together, then, okay, I'm out. Like, and, and not just sort of doing something that I don't enjoy doing or it kind of goes against the things that I want to try and change. And I guess I'm talking about recently I've sort of been hired or just brought into um, just, yeah, organisations who... And, and I guess this is the thing too, is that arts organisations are slowly becoming less relevant. So now they're scrambling at like, let's do First Nations takeovers, let's do youth takeovers, like let's, you know, like we need to become relevant quickly. Um, but then they still do all of the other stuff that's, I'm like, that's not relevant to all these people you're now bringing in. Um, so, so for me, I feel like I've been a bit of a Band-Aid. Like they've hired me to like do the diversity, do the rethinking, but then aren't willing to shift. Um, so yes, so for me, it's just been learning about like, okay, if, if I'm difficult, then fine. Like I'll accept that, but I'm not going to pretend that everything's okay and I'm not going to continue to work in this way. I am actually struggling with the, the whole burnout thing at the moment. Like, I'm still very uh, new to this whole art scene and, you know, writing. And I've been writing since I was in high school, but I've not been publishing it. I've just been giving it to my teachers, getting applauded and then hiding it away because I was embarrassed. Um, and so because of that, I feel I get into this headspace where I feel like I don't actually have a right to say no. And like I should be, I should be grateful for the opportunities I'm giving, I'm being given, and because of that, I shouldn't be saying no because then it's me being ungrateful that I'm getting these opportunities so early on in my life. Um, and now what I'm facing is my career at the moment. My job focuses on writing. It writes writing about. My people's history, it's writing about different issues my community is facing and it's all for a really good cause. It's for, you know, young Aboriginal kids who are in out-of-home care to learn about their community. But now I can't write personally. I'm getting home at, at the end of the day and I'm just so exhausted from having to reopen all of these wounds and these traumas that I've only just begun to get over or that I've only just begin, um, I'm just beginning to kind of... Uh, get used to and then I'm finding out new information that, you know, um, I didn't even know before or I'm just, yeah, reopening old wounds and then I don't have that space when I get home to then write for what I want to write about, whether that's still my community or it's about something fun. Like I went to Bali, I want to write about that. <laughs> like the idea of sitting down to do that is 
horrific to me at the moment. And I can see it slowly starting to affect my work now where I don't even want to write for my work. And that's like my job. If I don't write for work, I don't pay rent. <laughs> um, and so I'm starting to get into this headspace where I need to learn that it is okay to say no and that, yes, I should be grateful for the opportunities, but not taking them doesn't make me ungrateful. It just keeps me and my well-being safe. Um, and I'm using my peers a lot for that as well. I have some really good friends who have been in this space for a really long time and I'm learning off of them and their practices how to keep myself uh, safe, I guess. Yeah. What about you, Idol, actually? Because, yeah, I know your work seems to be really, like, hands-on. So how do you manage that? Yeah, I think I've really been working on... I feel like I'm like a YouTuber saying this, but like having a really good like nighttime routine and a morning routine and like doing all the things to actually genuinely like... Face mask. Yeah, yeah, like straight up. But also like, you know, actually using like what my mom uses, like like Somali, like the turmeric blend, like actually feeling, doing things that like connect me to like my people and like calling my family and going, going and spending time like with like my neighborhood grandmas who talk so much shit, but like I really enjoy spending time with. Um, so like thinking about ways, like what makes me feel good and trying to balance that out with all the things and not feeling guilty about that. I think that when you do community work, like being a youth worker and I work, like I work in a community that I'm from. So for me, like the programs we roll out, it's very specifically for young people I know. And it's different, like if it's North Melbourne or Kensington, it's young people that I've gotten to know in the last couple of years. I know they're all the siblings, but if it's Carlton kids, I've known them since they were born at this point. Like the teenagers now are the kids I've known since they were kids. So for me, I'm like, this is very personal. So I need to do my job well because I need it to go really well. Like I need them to have good experiences. Um, so then I guess this idea of like, cause I hear a lot, like if you do what you love, like you're not gonna get burned out, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's a lie. Like. Just straight out lie. Like I do so many things that I love and I'm exhausted. Um, but I guess it's like finding that balance. And I think that part of why the question I asked about how do you ensure it's long term, I've, I've been thinking about like if I'm not doing it, do I know enough people that are doing it that I feel calm, you know, that I feel like it's being taken care of. So I feel like the reason why sometimes I overwork is I feel like if I'm not doing it, it's not going to be done in the way that I would like it to be done. And I know that kind of need to let go of control a little bit. Um, but the other aspect of it is like, why do I feel that way? Is it because I don't think it will be done ethically? Do I think that it's not going to be done with as much passion or compassion or, um, or in a way that gives young people their dignity? Um, so like, I guess, or allows them to keep their dignity. It's, we're not giving them their dignity. They have their dignity. <laughs> we, just, <laughs> we just shouldn't be infringing on it. But I guess like for me, it's like thinking thinking long-term, it's about getting more people doing the work. So I think that like being a youth worker is such a good platform for like supporting young people who are interested in like activism and um, actually letting them know about who does what and things that they should be careful of. Cause I, I think I came into activism spaces when I was really young. And I think that if you're visibly something, sometimes people take advantage of that. Um, and I think that at times I was put on platforms as a way to tick more boxes, um, which doesn't feel good. But at the same time, I'm like, you can put me on this platform and you think that you're winning out on it. But actually I know I'm winning out because I know when I get there, I'm going to say what I want to say because I'm nobody's mouthpiece. But the other aspect of that is like, how it makes you feel because I think that I can really tell why people choose me for things. And even when you say yes, because you know you're going to get something out of it or your community will get something out of it, 
you still know what people's intentions are. And when it's not good intentions, it still doesn't feel good. And I think that that's part of the things that add to, it's all the things I think, there's so many different definitions of burnout and so many different ways to speak about it. But I think it's, um, for me personally, it's not actually feeling care from other people. Enough. Like I think that if I'm picking up other people's work because they're not doing enough work, it's because they don't have care for me and they work doesn't magically get done, somebody does it. So it's if somebody lets something fall off, it's it's because they don't care for me. Or if I'm dealing with structural things, it's because they definitely don't care about me. So I think that for me, it's like, how do I make sure that there's enough people doing the work? How do I show care for them? And how do I support them to get to the levels that, that they need to to be able to do so many things that I don't feel like there's a lack of if I'm not doing something. And how do I pass on opportunities as well? Like when I say no to something, sometimes I'm like, oh, you're just gonna choose another black person. I know you are and, and I don't want it to just be any black person. So then I like give them a suggestion for who they should choose, which like I've been told off for by my friends because my friends are always like, you're doing their work for them. If they're a curator, they need to figure it out. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I want a really good person on that panel. Like, I want a really great person. So then, like, you sometimes still end up doing more work. But I think that having a lot of people do that work helps out with burnout because it's not just you. You have a team. And that's how community works. I think that what we know from a lot of cultures is that they work as a community. And there's a reason for that. It's very purposeful. It's so that it's not one person doing the work. Yeah. I think another thing that um, just kind of popped into my head is that I, as a young Indigenous woman living on Indigenous stolen land, I don't know how to switch off from being a young Indigenous woman living on stolen Indigenous land. You know, um, if my work isn't about my identity, then my hobby is. And if my hobby isn't, then the way I'm relaxing is. And even when I go to speak to my aunties, it's always revolving back somehow to us and our bodies and how we're politicised. Um, when, you know, Aboriginal babies are born, that's a political movement um, because we're saying, like, our births are political because we're showing that we survived. Our deaths are political because nine times out of ten, we weren't okay when we passed. Whether it's the horrible gap in health or, you know, we've got really bad suicide in our, in our community at the moment. And there's always something going on that always brings me back to the political side of things, even when I'm trying to escape that. Me, even me graduating high school was a political movement because all our school could talk about was the fact that we had the highest percentage of Indigenous graduates in our area. And it wasn't even, like, no one seems to see us as people we're people of, we're always people of colour, we're never people. And so that makes it hard to switch off, which makes it easy to burn out. Mm. Yeah, I think this is, um, we can have an entire conversation about how we're required to perform trauma. And I, I had, again, this interesting proposition by some artists recently who said, like, they're exploring, okay, so how do we as people of colour talk about our work that, and it doesn't mention anything about trauma or like migration or family. Like they were trying to look at all these keywords that we use to describe 
culturally diverse work and they were like, how do we re reject all those things but still like have, you know, still be seen and still have the support? And then there was just silence in the room and like all the Aboriginal First Nations POC people in the room were just like, don't, we, we don't know. We don't know if we would get the same level of opportunity because we have to like yell and scream and get our foot in the door. And I know that I've, I think I've been, I've been wielding my like white passing privilege to get access into how like the arts work, but also now wielding the like, I'm the only like queer, like Burmese, like young person, you know, like, so here's my hot take. Um, but, but yeah, and I just had a thought about burnt out that, um, or being, or what being burnt out means for me. And I, I think this is somewhat helpful, but I think I've realized that I, I agree with all the things that both you were saying about burnt out, but just this recognition that I've had about burning out means I can no longer operate in this way. Like I need to shift gears. And I think for instance, this year, the reason why I'm burnt out is because I'm juggling way too many projects and I've been worried about losing the momentum. Like I wanna to continue to like grow what I'm doing. But now I've realized, okay, I'm burnt out because that's exhausting work and those organizations aren't being supportive and I don't have anyone supporting me other than like just, yeah, the, the people I care about. Um, so now I'm going, okay, well, in order to shift gears, I'm applying for funding to be fully independent and to not work in any organization, um, which is really exciting. And I, but again, that, that's work, but I'm able to research and prepare and plan and do that because I know it will get me out of this state in a way. But I mean, that's what, that's total productivity under capitalism. <laughs> like always having to like, yeah, yeah I don't know. That. And I think that, like, it's the thing of, like, if I don't do the work, who's going to do it in the way that I need it to exist? I think that if anybody outside of our own communities do something for us, then it's not going to be to the extent that we need it to be, you know? I don't want watered-down work, like, especially if that work gets completed, then it's done, move on to the next. We don't want to hear about it again. Whereas if it hasn't been done, then we can continue to fight for it to be done properly, like, you know, actually get to, like what we need. Um, I guess I wanted to ask, how have your political and social beliefs informed your art practice? But I think you talked so much about it. But if there's anything else that you guys want to add for that, I'd be happy to hear it. Um, yeah, like, so I just, I've just finished the Australia Council Future Leaders Program. So we had like training throughout the year and we just had training bizarrely in Alice Springs, which was a wild time with everything that was going on there. So that was a really confronting, challenging time to be like learning, but also be there in that context. It was, yeah, I can talk about that. Um, okay, no, now I'm just thinking about how weird it was. Um, um, what was, I've forgotten what I was, was saying. Just, um, that's all good. How have your <laughs> political and social beliefs informed your art yeah. practice? Um, yes, so, yeah, that's where I was going. Like, I feel like internally I've been this, like, angry, calling out all the white, like, crap, like, been calling it out and criti criticising it and being seen as this, like, angry, loud person. But actually I'm a total softie and a 
huge empath and actually like empathy is what informs all of my work. Like it's very much like, and especially being a producer as well, like you have 10 different options for any sort of situation. Like you're always kind of thinking, okay, like this person needs that, but if, they, if that happens then I need to do this and you're just constantly sort of overthinking and planning all the time. And that's, that's definitely um, like I think an advantage to like be working in, I guess, yeah, community art and that space of kind of going, what do other people need and predicting what they need before like they're at, they're at risk or they're taken advantage of. Um, and I think queer people are very good at empathy, but also I think a lot of white gays need to stop taking up space and allowing, I think, POC and, and yeah, and, and you were talking earlier about how actually pre-colonisation there was well, so much, like, there's so many more radical queer, I don't know, POC movements, and there still is. Um, but I'm really, like, yeah, I'm, I'm really leaning in, I think, to working in that queer people of colour sort of space. Yeah. I think before... Oh, sorry. Um, before opening it up to some questions, um, I wanted to ask, um, what are some future projects that you're working on that you want people to maybe check out? Or if there's any other, like other people are working on that you're excited about? So I'm currently in the process. I'm, it's still in the planning stages. I'm not quite sure exactly how I'm ready for it to look yet, but... I'm wanting to create a space for First Nations young people, but also the POC community uh, as a whole, where we can bring our art, whether it's writing, poetry, um, painting, whatever it is, into a space where it can be what they want and they can be artists, they can be writers, they can be poets, but they don't have to be black artists or gay poets. And it, they, like, they can just do what they want because I know for me, anytime I'm asked to write a piece, it's always because I'm black and not because I'm a good writer. <laughs> and then they compliment my writing later. They're like, oh my God, wow, you write so well. I was not expecting that. You write at like a uni level, that's crazy. And I'm like, why is it crazy? Is it crazy because I'm young? Is it crazy because I'm black? Is it crazy because you just wanted to say you had a black person write an article that you then went and edited and completely changed? Like. Where are you wanting that from? So I'm sick of being asked to write about my pain and my trauma. I want to write about my holiday to Bali if I want to write about my holiday to Bali. <laughs> I'm really trying to hear about this holiday to Bali. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's me. Um, I've been supporting a festival in December called Mapping Melbourne, which is like a really small program of contemporary Asian art so that kicks off um, from the 31st of November and runs until the 8th of December. And that's kind of just around the city of Melbourne. Um, I'm also working in another festival called Next Wave, which is this amazing experimental art festival. And that's in May next year. Um, and then I'm just also writing a lot now. So I'm really trying to focus on maybe a collection of poetry that I might want to put out into the world next year. But um, yeah, like I'm still a baby writer, so I don't know, we'll see. But I feel like the writing is the priority. Like I, I'm really enjoying writing again and I don't really care about it being like an outcome. Like it just feels like a nice thing to I work love towards. That. What um, about you? Um, 
good question. Uh, <laughs> forgot to think about this. Um, I guess I'm, I'm going to start recording um, my poetry. I perform with my friend Yusuf Hur Jr., who's an amazing keyboard player. And we've been talking ages for ages about like recording some of my poetry because we've performed a heap of times together. Um, so I think we might turn it into an EP and release that sometime at the end of the year. Um, end of the new year, not this year. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... I think that's it. Uh, does anybody... So I should probably also mention that this is being recorded to turn into a podcast. Um, so you can, when asking a question, you can say your name or you can not. It's up to you. Um, does anybody have a question? Um, yum, yum. Um, Georgia, she is so proud of you. This is like been... I've just literally been sitting here like nodding my head the whole hour. I'm going to need a massage later. Um, but I guess I'm wondering... Like, in all your work as a protector and as activists, I guess, is there a point that you see that it's going to be done? Or is there, like, a point that you're going to feel comfortable enough to step away from the space and not feel like you have to keep going? And this is open to the panel as well, like, keeping... Like, that you're going to feel like you are confident that everything's going to, like, be okay and maybe you can step back and not have to feel burnt out or, you know, stressed anymore? For me, I don't think there's ever going to be a point where it's done. I think as long as we lived in a colonised world, there's always going to be issues um, that we as colonised or attempted to be colonised people face uh, every day because we have lost so much and while we're gaining so much of it back... Um, that trauma will always be there and the oppression, I think, will never truly leave. But I see myself stepping down when I know the generations after me are able to take it up. I will fight for the rest of my life for my people. But, um, and I was only speaking to um, an elder uncle, Larry Walsh, about this yesterday where he said he's starting to get to a point now where he feels comfortable um, to start loosening up the reins of all of his fight because he sees my generation and the generation after me taking such a strong stance in a lot of that and I think I'm going to be the same. I'll be fighting the fight for as long as I can but when I know that the fight is in safe hands with the generations under me and I feel like I've helped prepare them enough for the fight, that's when I'll be able to take a step back from the fighting and go more into the caring role to take care of my community who will take up the fight. Thank you for the question. <laughs> Honestly, that was perfect. <laughs> I have nothing to add yeah. to that. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, that, was, that was great. Okay, I think that might be it. Um, we're going to be around if you want to um, talk to us afterwards. I want to thank Josh and Georgia for everything that you guys shared. Um, I feel very honoured. Um, I want to thank uh, Art Centre Melbourne and Emerging Writers Festival, the sound team and all the beautiful audience here and our Auslan translators and anybody else I might have forgotten. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to check out the full Digital Writers Festival program at 2019.digitalwritersfestival.com. Drop us a review, recommend us to a friend and hit subscribe wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Critical Conversations was curated by me, Ruby Rose Pivot Marsh, the associate producer at Emerging Writers Festival, 
as part of Arts Centre Melbourne's inaugural Future Echoes Festival. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the lands that this podcast reaches.